were, I don't know where we're going, we're like driving up, maybe to go pick up some like smoothies or something from Juice It Up. And uh, so I'm taking the, it's like a, it's a main street, but it's going through a residential area and straight up this person, I don't know who the hell they were. <laughs> they were driving down in a DeLorean. <laughs> who the fuck do you think you are? <laughs> And it's not even like a regular ass DeLorean. It's like one that has a flux capacitor and shit on the back. It, it's decked out to look like the one from the movie. And I was like, where the fuck did he get that? Dude, that's sick. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's cool. And ever since then, I've been trying to look around to see if there's like a service that will let you drive one around. Because I want to fucking drive one, dude. Oh, I would love that to as well. Fun. Yeah. It, it's like one of those situations where if I won the lotto, I wouldn't tell anyone, but there'd be signs. <laughs> i like that yeah i like that too just driving around in like a straight up back to the future delorean <laughs> it's not even subtle signs that's hilarious like we were not gonna put it together <laughs> so did you come across some money i'm like no why why, why you say that <laughs> was, there, was there like uh did you, did you get like an inheritance or something it was like what's going on dude that's crazy that's wow the delorean for real wow There'd be signs. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be dope. Oh, you know what? That actually kind of uh, goes into what I wanted to ask you. So have you ever taken your parents' car without permission or without them knowing and kind of going on a little trip? Oh, dude, I was deathly afraid to do that with my parents. But I did that with a cousin's parents. We took their car for a joyride. Oh, shit, really? <laughs> yeah, dude. And and the car stalled. It was, I'll tell you after. You please tell me. Um, well, my experience, I don't know. I got kind of ballsy for a little bit there. I think I was probably like 16, 17, something like that. Dad would be, he would be asleep, but he always kept everything like in his pants, right? So he would mm. like keep his keys in his wall and stuff like in his pants. And he would just like take them off and like hang them up. And so while he was asleep, I would kind of like just super ninja style, you know? Yeah. And make sure they didn't jingle. I'm just doing like that little like army, army crawl. crawl. <laughs> <laughs> I've even done shit like I would manually lift up the garage because it was automatic but i would like pull down the little rope this would be like one or two o'clock in the morning my friend was there too mm. it wasn't like a fancy car or anything it was just like a little scion xa but i mean that thing zipped around and the most dangerous thing to us at the time was like hey let's hit up the freeway bro oh <laughs> there's like no, there's no one on the freeway but like you know it, it's kind of intimidating when you've oh, never driven on the freeway yeah. yourself yeah absolutely yeah i mean it was it was a lot of fun we just kind of like had the windows down and we're just i think either he had a little mix cd or i had a mix cd so we just popped that in and we're just mm -hmm. like blasting that you know while we're driving it was a lot of fun it was chill dude so how about you oh right, what's right, your story right. so yeah that story that's the first one that came to mind at least i, I can't think of another but this uh yeah my cousin we're the same age and we were having a sleepover which was rare we didn't do that all that often Anyway, we were, we were doing, I think we were washing, we, we got the keys to the car. It was a Camaro. We got the keys to the car to wash it. And my cousin said, oh yeah, we're just going to take it around the block real quick. We were just supposed to move the car. Anyway, he ended up just deciding instead of going, instead of turning, making that left, we just went straight down that same street. Damn, aim for the bushes. Gave it. Yeah. Aim for the bushes. There goes my... <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh man, ooh, just thinking about it again makes me nervous because and and it's exhilarating at the same time. We're like, oh my gosh, because they didn't know like the his parents were inside. So this was all us. So we get up the street about I don't know a quarter of a mile, and uh, and decide to flip it or not to flip it, but to to, to you know do, flip a bitch. We pull into this driveway, and it's kind of like on a downslope. He's trying to back up to come back out and pull forward again. It stalls. And we had known that it had had problems. So we were, it wasn't like we were shocked, but it was just like, oh shit, it happened. Three blocks down. Yeah, exactly. So we were like, holy shit. Uh, <laughs> I got out of the car quick. We both pushed on the hood to try to get it up this big slope. It's like, I don't know why they made this big broad street. It's one of those main streets. I told him to hop in and I was giving it those last few pushes and it was starting to go faster than my feet could go. <laughs> Oh, so then I like it had to. it was like a make or break moment, do or die. Like I just had to make that jump. Like there's no question either that or just stop running altogether or fall down or something. So I, I, I jumped and my feet kind of nicked the, the street a little as I, as I tried to hop in, at least got my ass in there. So I was just like, all right, cool. It was funny because he was all cool, calm and collected before, but to see the panic that, that took hold, it was like, okay, yeah, we're, we're. We're both feeling it. <laughs> what was the plan? Like, if you couldn't get the car back up? There was no, mm -mm. it was just purely, we cannot accept failure here. We have to keep going. Otherwise, we would have just had to walk home all that way. <laughs> that was a delight. Oh, <laughs> uh, you ready to mob it? Let's mob it. <laughs> How you doing, everybody? Welcome to Affliction Oz Podcast, episode 33 a bonus episode it's also our uh, christmas episode so it's a christmas miracle <laughs> uh, new episodes drop on the first saturday of each month 5 a.m pacific we're available wherever you get your podcasts including youtube where you can find us at affliction autos podcast so please give us a like and subscribe we have merch find the link down in the descriptions of our episodes my name is eric and the other voice occupying your head this time is a man of many trades, philosopher, charmer, my good friend, colleague, and co-host, pal. I mean, Michael. <laughs> yo, 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 yo. Here on Affliction Isles Podcast, we mainly talk about films that range from mind-numbing to mind-blowing. We also cover TV shows and other forms of media. Of course, we will be getting to spoilers here, and there will be only the healthiest amount of expletives tossed in. You have been warned. If you ain't ready, then get ready, because in this episode, we'll be discussing the influential science fiction epic 2001 a space odyssey released in 1968 directed by none other than stanley kubrick <laughs> as of this recording it's available to watch on max i still fucking hate saying that but yeah yeah that's what it's called max not hbo max anymore fun fact about this movie this is stanley kubrick's eighth feature film overall and our second time covering one of Kubrick's films, our first, of course, being my favorite film of his, A Clockwork Orange. Damn. Oh, snap. Damn. That was, a, it out? That, was a, that was a crazy. Yeah, hell yeah. That was a crazy transition right there. <laughs> Throwing on the Flictionados t-shirt. I like it. Hell yeah. <laughs> repping. We're both repping it right now. That's right. I just noticed that. Lello. Nice, but you got you got that yellow one, that mellow yellow. I like mellow it. Mellow yellow, exactly. They call me mellow yellow. That's available on our, our merch store. Mm. Go pick that mm -hmm. up. Hell yeah. We got that. Let's mob it. Yeah. It's fresh oh, and ready to go. Shit. 
Hell yeah, <laughs> dude. I gotta cop me one. Mob it. <laughs> That's so funny that, that, that there's merch now with something some something that we were saying back in high school. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. It's like, who would have thought that that would be a thing later on? Yeah, it was just so, it was just like, hey, yeah, let's just do it. And it was so goofy, too. That's the whole point. It was just like, we're acting all tough. We're going to go play hearts. <laughs> Mobbing it. She tried to shoot the moon. <laughs> just to be seen. Oh, my gosh. How funny. So, Kubrick co-wrote 2001 alongside Arthur C. Clarke who was considered one of the big three science fiction authors at that time. The other two being Robert Heinlein, who wrote the novel that is also another one of my favorite movies of all time, Starship Troopers. Mm. And uh, Isaac Asimov, who wrote the Foundation series, Mm -hmm. which is what the TV show is based off of. Yeah, exactly. There's some pretty badass science fiction authors around that time. Yeah, I, I have a special place in my heart for Asimov. There's a story I, I read of his that was just blew me away. It's called The Last Question. Highly recommend it. Short story. Really, really thoughtful, though. 2001, the movie was inspired by Arthur C. Clarke's 1951 short story. Yeah, short story. The Sentinel. Mm. Sounds pretty interesting to hear about as I was doing some research in the movie. This movie also kind of has a... Uh, a warm place in my heart, you could say, because this is a movie that my dad adored very much. Hmm. He always wanted me to watch this movie as a kid. And I was just thinking like the the title and seeing the box art, it just looks so fucking old and the title sounded boring <laughs> as fuck. Why do you think a six-year-old is going to want to watch this? I had little to no interest in ever watching it. But uh, eventually I came around to it maybe during high school and fucking loved it. Mm. This movie just blew me away. And this was before I even understood. This might have been my first Kubrick movie that I ever saw, actually, now wow. I think back. Wow. And this was a hell of an intro to his style of filmmaking as yeah. well. Yeah. It's definitely more approachable than A Clockwork Orange. A Clockwork Orange is just, it's very disturbing subject matter. Yes. And not suitable for a six-year-old. <laughs> but this one's a little bit more forgiving, I would say, in terms of violence and, I don't know, tone and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This was your first time watching it, right? Recently? <laughs> this is, yeah, exactly. This is my first time. Um, I'd heard about it when I was younger. My, and my brother had seen it, I think, in high school. I remember him talking about it with my stepdad. And I just kind of felt like, oh, I, ha- I hadn't seen it yet. And I was just like, oh, I guess I'll come around to seeing it whenever. Like, uh, I'm not jumping on that bandwagon. I'm not going to be quick to just be like, oh, I got to see it now. I'm like, oh, I'll, come, I'll get to it when I get to it, whatever. And then time passed. And, and then it seemed to be co- kind of this intimidating thing where I'm like, oh man, it's going to be a long movie. Just kind of blew it up in my head. Like I've seen Spartacus two or three times in my life, which is in fact a three hour plus long movie. And and I love watching that movie. So I don't know, maybe it was just kind of in my head like, oh. What's kind of ironic about this movie too is that it's a long movie. The runtime is long. But me writing out the notes, it's actually a lot shorter than many of the movies that we've covered in the past. Mm-hmm. Even though there isn't as much to write about, I think it's because Kubrick likes to draw his scenes out, right? So mm-hmm. he likes to really just let you bask in these scenes a lot of the time. There may not be as many things going on, but also at the same time, I feel like in a lot of ways, there's even more going on and he wants you to see that. Yeah, it's a very, <clears throat> it's a very immersive experience. It feels like um, 
like Nolan kind of taps into the same thing in his own way, but it's that immersion where you allow yourself. It's like um, at that point too, it being Kubrick's eighth film, I would think he's earned that respect of giving him the benefit of the doubt. Whatever you're about to see, just hold your breath because it may be a lot more deep than you realize. Give give me give it a chance, sort of. So even though he does have like those long shots, to me, I would say it's uh it's worth it. I would say it's much like he's like Radiohead. You know what I mean? Like he he beat he goes to the beat of his own drum. He doesn't necessarily follow along what what fans might want him to do. Radiohead has just always done whatever they they're gonna do. And I I do feel like it, it is very different from his uh, previous works. It was a huge step in a different direction, and I think it paid off. I think it it's showing his versatility that he's able to cover other genres, not just war movies or anything like that. There was a review I I, I caught a glimpse of. I was just kind of looking through some stuff with uh with this movie as well, and something they said was what's kind of stunning about this work is that it's so it shows accuracy over some sort of Hollywood fantastical type of uh, science. It's like it's it's more accurate it shows more accuracy so i'm like who did he employ to make it accurate how how, how, what painstaking detail did he go into to make sure that it was Mm -hmm. accurate and um like what's going under my radar what am i missing right now because the man is is like a genius so anyway no he is he really is and I mean, there's a reason why he's so influential as a director to a lot of modern day directors I mean, his stuff, I feel like, stands the test of time. You love The Shining, right? I I really enjoyed it. Um, I love Clockwork Orange. I had a blast with this movie. And I'm still excited to go back and dip into the rest of his collection and see what those other movies are like. Dude, I can already tell that this is going to be an awesome episode. And I just wish that I would have been able to have my dad listen to the episode when it was done. You know, like, I think that would have been really cool. And just to see what his experience was like when he first saw the movie and like, how does that compare to our experience? And it would have been a lot of fun. Yeah. Ah, This one goes out to him. Definitely. This one's for your father, for sure. So the prologue, I I, I call it a prologue. I don't know if you consider it one, but the beginning of this movie kind of seemed disconnected from the rest of it. So that's kind of why I consider a prologue, but it begins in a very early prehistoric era of Africa, where we see a tribe of hominins that are driven away from their water hole by a rival tribe. I didn't realize what was exactly happening here. I I thought maybe sure they're fighting over the water, but I didn't realize that it was like the protagonist tribe that was getting driven away because it was very difficult to understand who was on what side because they mm-hmm. all looked the same. Right, right, right. I was trying to differentiate the different the, the the two tribes. I was uh, I was even talking to my girlfriend Easton. I was like, "Hey, what do you think? What do you think is going on here?" Like, they were they were sitting on in front of this pond, right? They're all kind of crowded around it, and I was like, "I think I think those are rivals. I don't think." That there, there are a couple of things could be going on here, but like, uh, what's, what's happening? And then, of course, at that point, yeah. they had the bone to use as a as a weapon. <laughs> yeah, because I wasn't sure if it was like, were they attacking? Were they like invading, or were they defending? I think what's happening is they got their first. That was like their source of water, and I think they were driven away by like a more powerful tribe, so they had to go like relocate somewhere. So you know, they're like sleeping under a, a different rock or something. 
And mm. at some point, the tribe wakes up to see a strange, smooth, black obelisk or like monolith that is just mm -hmm. fucking like chilling next to him. <laughs> and I mean, this freaks them the fuck out, right? So because this got there somehow without them noticing at all. It didn't make any noise. It doesn't move or anything. It doesn't look to be alive. Their first impression of it is probably my first impression of it. Like they thought this was this was something dangerous, right? So I think to them, they thought of it as some sort of like invading creature almost, perhaps because, you know, they didn't quite know what it was. So they're like, oh, shit, we're being attacked. But um, once they they kind of like surround it, they're like poking and prodding at it. They realize that it's just an inanimate object. That's when they start kind of like rubbing their fingers on it. And they're, they're like, they don't know what to fucking do, but they start like almost like dancing around it and everything. So I think they mm. got some sort of, feeling from it like it, it's kind of difficult to explain but i it seems like they knew that it was there for a reason and perhaps maybe even there to help them in some way they just didn't know what that exact purpose was right right exactly friend or foe that yeah they, they started off with just trying to touch it to try to understand it's interesting to see how as humans we always try to learn through our senses so of course touching the thing is also understanding it a little better Mm -hmm. the surface is it smooth what 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 is it you know how would you describe it what do you think it feels like do you think it's warm or is it cold oh that's a good question is it smooth or is it does it have texture yeah it seemed to have like a smooth texture from i don't know though is it matte do you i don't recall it being very shiny per se i think it was i don't know if it was shiny but it seemed a little bit reflective right so maybe smooth but like, what does it mean? What does it, what does it, I guess that's the real question. I think that that's what ends up um, plaguing them is that very question of what does this mean? And that frustration of not understanding that that gets to them. What does this mean? You're, you don't seem to be a threat, but you're also not, um, you don't seem friendly either. So what is, mm -hmm. what, what's your purpose and what's going on here? It might as well just be a, a rock, you know, out in this desert because they touch it, you know, they're trying to intimidate it. They're trying to get all big and like surround it and like it's not doing anything. It, it doesn't activate. It doesn't do a, it doesn't make any noise. It's just fucking there. And so they're like, all right, whatever. Mm -hmm. The cool part about it is that not long after that, after their interaction with this strange object, the leader of the tribe begins to start thinking outside the box in a way, right? And so he starts realizing that he can use bone as a tool. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if like, that was that was the purpose of this monolith is that maybe just by being in your presence, and you trying to understand what the fuck this is, maybe that triggers a different way of thinking, you know, like, maybe that's what starts causing us to evolve in in the way that we need to. It's very odd, but it's like indirectly causing us to advance ourselves right change change forces us to adapt <clears throat> and therefore advance it's like challenging us in a different way mentally right mm -hmm. like for them they start out using the bone as like a an advanced way of hunting they became more efficient at hunting and so they're eating well they were killing those like little like pig looking things mm-hmm it's like all of a sudden now hunting is not as big of a deal and you don't have to risk your lives as much. So it's easier and it's safer, more efficient. You're not expending as much energy. You can The same amount of food that they were getting in a day was probably something that they could only get in a week. Mm. 
And then after that, you know, once they become really efficient with their tools, with the bones, they end up going back to that watering hole and they encounter that rival tribe again. But uh, this time things go a little differently. <laughs> they didn't come to play. Mm, that's right. <laughs> they handle business. Oh, yeah. They make an example of one of them. Now, I mean, because tools are a pretty general term. I mean, that could apply to pretty much anything. But in that case, the tool became a weapon and they were easily able to just overpower the other tribe and scare them away with minimal effort, too. Yeah, really. They just had to take one guy out. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting... The thoughts were running through my mind. My brother's been playing this game uh, where you're, you're, you play like a, a homo sapien and you're evolving this person you're 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 you are you're being by just exposing them to new experiences and so i'm thinking to myself kind of in relation to that game but with this movie i was thinking those kinds of very human things that are part of us to this day which are we are naturally curious they couldn't just walk away just as we couldn't walk away without trying to understand this thing if you tried to live away from this thing it would in the back of your mind still be burning a hole because you're still wondering what the fuck was that thing. It's why when we see something in the sky like a UFO, people just flip out. They're like, what is that? They want to understand. As humans, we seek understanding. We want to move from the known to the unknown. We're, we're just naturally curious. And so, mm. um, so again, that, that, they're faced then with that obelisk or, or monolith. And it's like this thing that's just inanimate. Here we've seen all this activity between the tribes and everything. Um, so there's there's been this constant movement, and then that and then there's this thing that they just can't overcome, right? So we were talking about oh these people came in, kicked them out, they overcame that, and and other things to to survive, and yet then they are faced with this thing that they just can't understand. <laughs> yeah, pretty wild. What'd you think of the uh, the little film technique? You probably know the term for this, but when they throw the little object in the air and it matches like the next scene. Oh. Like when the bone matched the ship in space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. I don't remember. I don't know the name of it off the top of my head, but yeah, that was a that was an interesting transition and using that as as uh, the same shape. I, I was like, yeah. it's so funny. Like you could look at it now and be like, oh my gosh, that's so old hat. That's such a gimmicky thing, but it's like at the time it wasn't like it, it, you have to almost like put yourself in that space. Yeah. Like this is the apex. This is the one that created it. Everyone wanted to copy that. So like mm -hmm. it's all every all of those other ones that came after like in the 80s transitioning with movement like that in an, an inanimate object to another thing, another inanimate object. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be like related at all. Like in this case, you know, it's the bone to the ship, which I think the relation there was the advancements in technology in tools you you go from this very primitive bone to like now you have this fucking spaceship that's that's built by man wow exactly wow brilliant that's a great connection i didn't i didn't see that exactly what'd you think of the music as well because i mean this movie has some mm. pretty notable songs in it mm. all of the music is stuff that i appreciate so much um I like composers like Philip Glass. And when I was in college, I I, I went into a, um, they don't even have them anymore, not a Sam Ash, but a, um, what was it? Tower Records. I went into a Tower Records and I picked up a copy of this composer named Ervo Part. 
And I was so blown away by his music. It was so stark. It was so different than anything I'd heard before. I believe it's his work that's in the in the movie that the choir, the choral works where it's like really agitated and it, it was very eerie sounding. Cause it was just like, uh, like it was, it was a lot of just like that on top of itself. Right. Uh, like this yeah, like almost yeah. humming buzz sound. Mm hmm. It's just that that's just so fucking amazing. I just love that so much that Kubrick incorporated contemporary compositions with some of the most beautiful works as well. I'm not sure if there was, it was like Mozart or, or, or um, Beethoven, some really, really beautiful pieces in there, but, but also to have the Ervo part in there, uh, the, the real minimalist kind of like edgy freaky stuff. I wonder if this was a lot of people's introduction to these songs. And what does that say about Stanley Kubrick that he did that knowing that, <laughs> right? This might be people's first introduction to that music and their introduction to that music will be set to something that is fucking beautiful <laughs> floating in space. I mean, people can think like these songs are really outplayed now. Right. But um, I was just thinking I was trying to put my headspace back in 68 when the movie came out. Mm -hmm. And I was just mm -hmm. trying to think of like, because these songs are fantastic. We've heard them time and time again, you know, since then. But how great were these songs when people were watching this movie for the first time? It must have been an experience. I got to imagine it was. Because even then it might have been people's first introduction to that music. Yeah. Now we jump to the future year of 2001. And this is their interpretation of what 2001 would have been like. So we follow <laughs> Dr. Haywood Floyd, played by William Sylvester, who is the chairman of the U.S. National Council of Astronautics and travels from Earth to the Hilton Space Station, which is a pretty dope-looking space station. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of like our International Space Station, but like on a larger scale. Yeah. He has a, a quick FaceTime session or video call with his family, then has a chat with some scientists in the lobby area. This was probably, it was so far away at that time. They're like, in the future, in 2001, we're going to be able to have all of our phone calls, but with video. <laughs> I mean, you know, we can do that now, but like, it's still not more common than a regular phone call. Still, still, it's true. Mm -hmm. I think most of the time, because people don't want to see what we look like right now. I'm looking pretty disheveled. I don't need people to be seeing this. <laughs> you gotta look presentable all the time if that's the case right right exactly and you're home and we're chilling but it's just cool to think that back then they thought that that was just gonna be the norm mm -hmm. they must have been blown away by that 1968 yeah it didn't come till like when did we get video calls i don't know if 2001 was the year but i think it was closer to like oh three it's probably when smartphones came out because I don't think people are doing that on like those basic ass cell phones. Like you could take selfies mm. and stuff. You have the front facing camera, but I don't think you were like taking phone calls like that. Hmm. Yeah. I remember seeing an ad for a landline that had a screen on it and I was like, no way we're living in that time now. Like it was weird. This is it. This is the future. That was like the first commercial I saw of any video of real technology that was meant for real video conference calls. You know, I mean, this is some Jetsons shit right here. All that cool, fun stuff that they're doing on that TV show. Mm-hmm. We're living it now. Except for the flying cars, but. <laughs> but yeah, I got a kick out of that little uh, video call that he did. 
it was fun to see that. And then we get some background, you know, once he goes to the lobby area and speaks to those scientists and they're talking about how they're concerned that the Clavius base on the moon has been unresponsive. And they share with him that there's some sort of rumor of like a sickness or outbreak and they've been quarantined. They're concerned that someone might contract that and like bring it back to the space station. But, you know, Dr. Floyd's just like, no, 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 it's nothing like that. You know, he just shoots it down. And so they're looking for answers, but he doesn't really give them much of anything, which I mean, you know, we're on the same page as the scientists because we don't know what Dr. Right. Floyd knows. Dr. Right. Floyd is being really vague about the situation that keeps us like, what's really going on here? Mm hmm. I actually would have liked to see a little bit more of that space station, but I, I get the sense that wasn't that important to the story. So he only needed to be there so that way he can like refuel the ship and then fly to the moon and the moon he goes <laughs> into the moon. No, that was a cool space station. They had another hotel there as well. I thought, Oh, and it was a Pan Am flight. I was like, I couldn't yeah. believe it was so uh, yeah, of course. Pan Am. Wow. He was like the only one on that flight too. It was almost like a private yeah. jet of like space shuttles. <laughs> and it's cool to see because did you notice that the stewardess, she had like Velcro shoes. What? No, I watched her care moving carefully. I didn't realize she was wearing Velcro shoes. Wow. It was something like that. It was like something to like stick to the material of the floor. And she, that's when she picks up his pen. Cause his pen's kind of just like suspended in the air and she like tucks it into his pocket. Hmm. That's pretty dope. It was like zero G. That was. Yeah, exactly. It's zero G. That's right. Something like that. So Dr. Floyd travels from the space station to Clavius on the surface of the moon where a meeting is conducted, stressing the need for secrecy regarding their newest discovery, which we still don't know what the hell it is. They're being really vague and secretive of whatever it is that this topic is. They're not naming any specifics. So again, we're kind of left out of the loop. But we do learn that Dr. Floyd has been brought in to investigate whatever it is is going on here. And we soon discover that He's there to investigate a recently discovered artifact partially buried in one of the moon's craters, Tycho. You guessed it. It's that damn monolith again. <laughs> it's that damn monolith. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put it out with your boots, Ed. <laughs> to anyone who doesn't know, that's our uh, Helen voice. It's a, <laughs> a sweet old lady that calls into IT regularly <laughs> uh, something so humorous about old people using you know mild curse words <laughs> they say the darnest things <laughs> yeah <laughs> So I'm wondering, though, with this discovery on the moon, is, do you think this is the same one or is this a different one? Are there like several? Of that these? is a damn good question. And I don't know the right answer to that because I thought the same. I was like, oh, is this monolith something that's been here since those those hominins were around or since before mm -hmm. them? Or I was thinking, um, was that really Earth? I wasn't sure of anything. I hadn't done any kind mm -hmm. of reading on it yet. So mm -hmm. when I watched it, I was just like, <clears throat> is this Earth or is this some other planet? Are these monoliths being sent out simultaneously right now? Or have they been around for a while and we're just picking up on, oh, shit, these things are 
everywhere and they have been. Yeah. We just now found a way to determine that they're around. They can travel or they can be transported in some way because we saw that Monolith wasn't there at the very beginning and then it was. And we just don't know how the fuck it got there. Just like we don't know right. how the fuck it got on the moon and it's like partially buried. So that that kind of leads us to believe that it had been there a while because it had been there long enough for like all this moon dust to start covering it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And it just stayed in the same spot. It didn't move around. Right. Kind of makes me wonder, like, was that object what created that crater in the first place? Did it just impact the surface and just embed itself in the planet or the the moon? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I wondered the same thing because it seemed to be an impact point as well around the or in the middle midst of the apes or around that around that obelisk. So it was it was kind of buried huh, at the base. Mm-hmm. So you don't really know how deep down it goes. Is it like burrowed into the ground or is it just sitting on top perfectly balanced? Right. Right. Interesting. Very interesting. Hmm. They were doing some digging with this one on the moon, though, you know, like there's a whole excavation site around it. And, you know, they walked down to it and everything. And Dr. Floyd and company examined the object, not unlike the hominins in the prologue. Right. Like they're just kind of Mm -hmm. like carefully approaching it, looking around it, trying to understand it. Um, They attempt to take a team photo in front of it. And then there's this debilitating high pitched sound that stuns the crew. It's kind of alarming, you know, because at least what I got from it was like, is this some sort of defense mechanism that's doing right now? Mm-hmm. I wonder why it started making that noise all of a sudden. Yeah, what was different? What what had changed? Why could the others approach it, but not these? Yeah, because up until then, it hadn't made any noise. So that I think that's mm-hmm. why they felt safe to approach it. Apparently, they discovered uh, a new function that it can do. These obelisks can emit this high-pitched sound. Mm-hmm. Now we jump 18 months after that, and this is pretty much the time frame for the rest of the movie. So now we have the American spacecraft Discovery 1 that is Jupiter-bound and is transporting several scientists, including Dr. Dave or David Bowman, played by Keir DeLay, and Dr. Frank Poole, played by Gary Lockwood. These two are the only two awake because the rest of the crew are in suspended animation. So they're tasked with just making sure that everything's running properly, doing any repairs necessary, but they're just there to make sure that the rest of the crew get to Jupiter in one piece. Did you think that it was a little awkward seeing the lack of speaking going on? Because you have Dave and Frank walking past each other and like near each other and stuff like that, but they don't really talk a whole lot like it was pretty quiet and it was just a lot of ambient noise going on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i don't you know i wonder if they have to just you have to be a type of you have to have that kind of solitude maybe they get tired of being around each other i don't know it's not a very big space to be in you're mm-hmm. sure it's like a, it was a large space station or a spaceship but there's only so many places you can go and you have to keep running into that same one person every single day Right, exactly. Eventually, it's just kind of like, what else is there to talk about? Exactly. And you're grateful for the fact that there's not somebody who's just there to kind of fill up the air with with nonsense. You know, you're just like, Mm. they almost don't even acknowledge each other at all, though. You know, it's not like, hey, what's going on? Good morning or anything like that. It's just like, let me grab my food, you know, sit down and then just watch TV or whatever the fuck that they're doing. Oh, right. I mean, for one, what'd you think of the food, the space food? I thought it was pretty interesting. 
Mm. Out of the tubes? It's just like you have red goop, brown goop, or green goop. You only have a finite amount of choices here. Mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of funny. It was it's funny that they all had just little straws sticking out of it and then a little explanation and maybe a little picture of what it mm -hmm. was. Better to see that and and not the bag that's inside. You know what I mean? Like a goop. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to see what it actually looks like. Mm -hmm. On the Discovery 1, though, he went up to this console and he was just kind of like turning like little bays on. And then once he, he prepared the food, he just pulls out this tray and he puts it on his larger tray. And then they just eat out of those. It's sustenance. Oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, how you yeah. were saying earlier, it's just sustenance. Like it doesn't need to look presentable. Mm -mm. It may not even need to taste that great. It's just going to keep you alive. That's it. That's it. Like an MRE. I mean, Tang, Tang was made for space. Tang, Dude, Tang was, was made for the astronauts. Yeah. And then it became like for public consumption. Dude, I fuck with some Tang. <laughs> Us too. <laughs> In our household. Kool-Aid. I remember tang. the commercials with the monkey. <laughs> the, that monkey was going cuckoos for that Tang. And so was I. <laughs> Same. I think it could go for a while. But man, having some Tang in the house was, was definitely a treat. You're like, dang. Dang. Is that Tang? Dang. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What you know about that Donald Duck orange juice, though? Oh, shit. I don't even <laughs> see that around anymore. But I just remember being a kid and just being like, why aren't we buying that right now? Grandma, why are we buying like jank <laughs> orange juice? I would just be walking through like, why? So many colors on it. And Donald, why? Yeah. I'm I'm doing this world a great disservice. Am I, am I a Disney fan or am I not as a kid? Right. Exactly. I'll call Ryan and have him do the Donald Duck voice. <laughs> oh, Narrating yeah. us drinking it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, he actually did that Donald Duck voice on our Goofy movie episode. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. He did it himself, you know, without me asking him to. But I'll, at some point, I was going to have to ask him to do it because, you know, he <laughs> would do it in the office periodically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's oh pretty spot God. on. I think he might actually be a suitable replacement for the original voice actor. Oh, if seriously. they ever want to retire, I'm like, just bring, just hire Ryan. Yeah, no, his, his technique is really, really good. It's funny because he picked it up so quick that there was a friend who used to do the, the Donald Duck voice and he would say, Oh yeah. in the Donald Duck voice, but, <laughs> but my pops couldn't figure it out. And he'd always, he'd been doing the Donald Duck voice since I was you know a kid. And my brother Ryan hears about this and he goes, huh? And he tries it and he, freaking nails it so that's how he started doing that one and i was like oh it's just a weird weird placement of the tongue it's like a little puzzle in your mind to figure out how how to do it but yeah he he figured it out so now we're gonna introduce one of the major characters of this movie and arguably maybe the most interesting part of this entire movie so we come to learn that most of the ship's functions are controlled by an ai computer with the human-like personality called the HAL-9000, or simply HAL. And I believe the full term for HAL is heuristically programmed algorithmic computer. Heuristic meaning like problem solving more quickly and efficiently. And since HAL is basically the entire ship being fully integrated, I feel like it's often represented by one of those like built-in cameras 
or the ominous red eye, if you will, present in various consoles throughout the ship. That's kind of how he's represented throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. What did you think of Hal when you, they first introduced him? Um, I thought his voice was really pleasant. I was like, oh, wow, if only our reality was a, a much was more like this version instead of what we have in Siri and other other voice assistants. He's very articulate as well. Very articulate. Yeah, I, I do. I don't know. There's a, there's a nice tone to it. I, I, he's he's likable. Yeah. Doesn't panic or doesn't induce panic or stress mm -mm. or anything like that. He's, he's very calm, calculated. Mm -hmm. We even get some exposition about how on those TVs and tablets while they're eating. Were you listening mm, to yeah. like a little TV program going on? So they yeah. were talking about how, and I think even Dave was in one of those uh, interviews talking about how that's right that's right it, it was an efficient way of further explaining what hal actually was because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're talking about how there's several hals and the fact that none of them have ever made a mistake they just get the job done like they're very efficient that's the whole reason why they were brought on and integrated into the spaceship was because of their track record it's a win-win you know like of course, we're going to want the best technology on this ship with us to assist us in whatever way we can to ensure that this mission goes through successfully. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, tools. Hell is a man-made tool. It shows mm. further advancement in our tools. We have a vehicle to be able to travel into space. And now we have this companion that can help us compute and problem solve. Yeah. Yeah. This tool is a, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. It's almost like getting to that point where the tools are growing quicker than we are and we're not in any position to control it anymore, mm -hmm. which is kind of scary. Mm -hmm. The tool becomes smarter than you. Right. Wild. Yeah. Scary. Speaking of scary, we have Hal reporting an imminent failure in the antenna control device and Davis tests to basically suit up. Hop in a uh, extravehicular activity pod or EVA pod, as they call it, and replace the module. I thought this was pretty cool because, again, this is one of the longer scenes. I think this is also where you see that iconic box art. You have that white octagon shaped hallway. You know, Dave puts on the red suit. That's like his color. Right. So he puts on the red suit and, you know, he's kind of walking through the, the hallway, touching the ceiling. He has to actually fly this EVA pod out of the spaceship kind of park it nearby and then hop out of the back of it to get to this antenna. This is a good like 15 minute long scene right here. Mm -hmm. But I found it very interesting just like how long it takes because, you know, you want to make sure that you're doing everything properly. But it seemed safer to just kind of like crawl out of a hatch with yourself attached to the ship like a tether, manually crawl your way to the antenna from a hatch rather than to park this little pod nearby and then like dive out of it. Cause that seems like it's not as controlled Uh huh. just so you can do a repair. seems like it's kind of risky. Yeah. Unnecessary, unnecessary risk, but man, is it beautiful? It is. It's, it's definitely really cool to watch and just to see him work. I had no idea what the fuck he was doing. It looked like he was basically just pulling out a battery and throwing another one in. Mm-hmm. Dave is able to replace that little module in the antenna. He brings it back inside the ship and uh, they start examining it. The only problem is they can't find anything wrong with it, including Hal, which is a little concerning because Hal has never made a mistake. 
And so they're looking through it and they're just like, you know, I, how I can't find anything wrong with it. And Hal even admits it itself, right? It's just like, yeah, I can't really find anything faulty with it either. Everyone's just kind of left shrugging like, okay, like that was a waste of time. So this is where Hal suggests reinstalling that faulty, that supposedly faulty module and allowing it to fail so that way they can properly identify what's wrong with it. But Dave and Frank are like, why would we do the double work and go through all the hassle just for research purposes? Go back out there, put this module back in, let it fail, go back out there, bring it back, and then we will finally know what's wrong with it. Uh-huh. I think Hal is thinking like, there's no way I could be wrong. We're never wrong. There's got to be something wrong with it, and we need to find out what it is. So Hal's kind of like more focused on that part, and I think Frank and Dave are like, mm, this is weird. Exactly. But I, I guess they ultimately decide to go through with it anyway because later on, I think Frank does go out there to replace it. But before that, uh, the incident is reported to Mission Control, who then run the report through their own HAL computer back at home base. And that HAL identifies that Dave and Frank's HAL actually did make a mistake. There is nothing wrong with it. Oh, wow. Dave and Frank are informed that the one that's on their ship that they use and depend on actually made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time in the history of the HAL 9000 computer that Hal has actually made a mistake. Furthermore, to make things even more concerning, Hal kind of tries to defend himself in this situation by explaining to Dave and Frank that since Hal's don't make mistakes, it was more than likely a human error. <laughs> Now they're thinking like, what the fuck kind of shit is that? You know, like now we're getting blamed for this thing being faulty, but not really. Mm-hmm. When it was, <laughs> it was entirely Hal's fault. Like we had a, we wouldn't have ever questioned it had he not brought it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now he tries to turn around and say like, oh, this must be a human error. <laughs> so what does that say about Hal? I know. He's a bitch ass mofo. That's what it says. <laughs> mm-hmm. At this point in the movie, how were you feeling about Hal? We're starting to get like these ominous feelings about him. Yeah. Well, I knew he goes, I mean, that, that, that had been spoiled for me already. Uh, mm. The fact that Hal, Hal's bad, or at least it doesn't have our best, it doesn't have human best interests at heart. So I was looking for when the shoe was going to drop. So as soon as he starts, as soon as that he sent them out, I didn't realize he made a mistake. In fact, actually what I thought was, oh, he's, he's already plotting to kill them. He's not, I didn't think about him making, actually making a mistake, but now that you've explained it that way, I'm like, oh, okay, now I see what happened. Okay. It makes so much more sense. Okay. Yeah. He made a mistake and then he takes issue with them. Like he just suddenly has to bring it up again to be like, yeah, it's a human error more than likely because we all know humans make errors. Yeah. That's what I thought was so funny about it was that he can't just accept that. Like I was wrong. He's just like, no, hows don't make mistakes. It must be a human error somehow, even though another how just proved him wrong. Right. Dang. Yeah. And then it's like, once he makes that jump, human error, he suddenly just goes, oh, I just got to kill the humans now. It kind of opens a floodgate in a way. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like this incident started making the two crew members a little uneasy. And it started making Hal uneasy. They're, They're almost like trying to think of like, how can I continue this mission without the the other Right, right. Oh, shit. They're starting to think in their minds that, fuck, if we need to disconnect Hal, how are we going to do that? He controls like 
damn near everything on the ship. So is there a way that we could actually disconnect pieces of him and still keep full functionality of the ship? They have that whole thing to think about. And then Hal's thinking, am I going to have to like get rid of these fools? Because they're going to try to get rid of me. They're going to eat her and then they're going to eat me. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. This was a pretty uh, fun to watch this part of the scene because the tension could be cut with a knife. Seriously. Tensions are, are, are kind of high between Dave, Dave, Frank and Hal because Hal even says like, I hope your discovery of, of this information doesn't change your opinion about me. You know, like he, Hal was basically saying something like that to the, the two crew members. And they're like, no, 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 of course not. And then Dave invites Frank to test communications in the the eva pod so they go inside the pod and he orders how to like rotate the pod or whatever and so that's when you can kind of see hal in the background right just that eye watching them at all Uh times uh that's when he flips off the little controls and then he tells how to flip the pod again but he doesn't do it because he can't hear him anymore so they essentially just created a soundproof room for themselves that's where Frank and Dave expressed their actual real concerns about how. And I just thought that it was so smart of them to keep their cool because they understand how smart Hal is, even though they were both thinking something's wrong here and we got to do something about this. You couldn't see it from their exterior, you know, like they kept that poker face. And so that's when they start discussing like how they can disconnect him from the rest of the ship. Mm-hmm. they're playing it very safe and i just loved how this whole situation was handled because at first i was just like why would you purposely turn the pod so that way hal could see you but i finally understood the second time around that he was just telling him he was just giving him some sort of like mundane command yeah. to like yeah, rotate it, it mm-hmm. and then rotate it back just to test if he could hear him and so when he didn't rotate it back around they just felt that they were safe to be able to discuss what they needed to little did they know Hal is so advanced that he can fucking read lips. <laughs> exactly. That was a huge discovery. That was like a, a mind-blowing thing right there. Like, mm-hmm. holy fuck. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. And they didn't either. Exactly. Oh. I love the way that they portray this terror in Hal because it you know shows them t- talking through that little Eva pod window. And then it like zooms in on their lips. And then it like does a close-up of Hal's eye. Always there, always watching, always thinking. Cold, yeah. It's very cold, very inhuman. Mm-hmm. That red eye that doesn't blink, it doesn't turn off, it's always there. Mm-hmm. And I-, I loved how they handled that. This <laughs> is such a cool villain in a movie. One of the most unique. Definitely strange and wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and terrifying. <laughs> and terrifying. Since they decided to go through with the plan of throwing that little module back in just to see if it'll fail, you know, Dave went out and retrieved it. So now Frank is going to go put it back in, puts on his suit, and you can differentiate him because he has a different colored suit. His is uh, yellow, right? Mm -hmm. So Frank goes out there. He basically does the exact same thing Dave did, hops in the little Eva pod, parks it next to the ship, dives out of it. But as Frank is descending on the ship, Hal fucking takes over the Eva pod and rams into Frank, compromising his his uh, suit, his oxygen, and sends him spiraling uncontrollably into space. Yeah, Frank's pretty much fucked. Dave has to basically <laughs> rush to like 
throw on his suit. Not he doesn't even fucking fully suit up. He only partially suits up. Hops in the secondary pod and flies out to rescue Frank. I didn't realize until later that I believe Frank died before Dave even got there. They weren't talking to each other, right? And they weren't. Mm-hmm. He wasn't responding or anything like that. He just kind of caught him and then flew back to the ship. Right. During that time, Hal turns off the life support functions on the rest of the crew in suspended animation, effectively killing them. Yeah. Hal ain't giving a shit right now. No, he's taking everybody. (laughs) Going down without a fight. Dave, after he's able to catch Frank, he flies back to the ship and then he orders Hal to open the hatch. Only Hal doesn't want to. (laughs) Blatantly defies this uh, order. This yeah, this is one of those uh, moments where you're just you're finding like they're fucked. What are they gonna do? Yeah, Hal is basically saying that he can't allow Dave to jeopardize the mission. Hal's gone completely rogue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's not taking orders from anyone anymore. He's gone into business for himself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Dave kind of fucks himself over right here because he doesn't even grab a helmet before he hops in the pod. So that's why I said that he didn't even fully suit up. He has the suit from like the neck down, but he doesn't have the helmet. Right. He's confined to that pod now. And that pod is stuck outside the ship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He has no way of getting back in. Um, did, I don't know about you. Did you notice that Dave is normally calm and collected, but in this part of the move right here, he seemed like he was panicking. Like he didn't even know what to say. Yeah. Fear, anger, adrenaline. Yeah, oh, yeah. he was definitely thinking quick. Imagine locking yourself out of the spaceship (laughs) and having no way of getting back in. Yeah. What the fuck do you do? Dave has to use, uh, you know, some of his critical thinking right here because he he can't stay outside this ship forever. So he flies over to this little side hatch, opens it up, this airlock Mm. chamber. He has to basically blow this door off of the Eva pod and have the the escaping oxygen propel him into the airlock chamber quickly close it so that way he doesn't suffocate or freeze to death there's a great chance that it could go awry but hey he doesn't really have much of an option at this point Mm -hmm. exactly so yeah he blows the hatch and he gets shot out into that airlock chamber (laughs) and he fucking slams into like the back of it first big time he almost gets sucked into space, which is fucking terrifying. Mm-hmm. But he's able to grab a hold of that little control panel and like close the door. It stabilizes, you know, that chamber, fills it with oxygen. He's able to breathe again. And uh, Dave is now back on the ship and he's fucking pissed. Yeah. He ain't taking no more chances with Hal. So he heads straight for Hal's processor core and begins disconnecting most of Hal's circuits as Hal actually pleads with him to stop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is kind of unsettling to watch because obviously he's he's AI, but he's getting to that point where he is self-aware. He is becoming more human-like, you know, and he's doing things like self-preservation and a lack of trust in other people, human traits that like you don't really expect computers to have. Mm-hmm. At this point, Hal is pleading for Dave to stop as he's disconnecting him from the ship. This kind of showed Hal being fearful, being fearful of his life. And apparently he's he's sentient too, because he even uses the term feel a couple times. Mm-hmm. I can feel, I feel it. I feel it, Dave. Very strange and kind of unsettling. Mm-hmm. Did you feel bad for Hal at all? Yeah. He, he was essentially getting killed right here. 
Yeah, a little. Yeah, I did feel a little bad, but knew it needed to be done. It's like you're fighting like another another human. It's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. After Hal is finally shut off, a pre-recorded briefing of Haywood from the beginning of the movie, uh, a briefing of Haywood plays, and it's meant to reveal to the now dead crew of the Discovery One that their mission to Jupiter was actually to investigate this radio signal that was sent from the moon's monolith to Jupiter. So that sound that was emitted, they later discovered that that was a radio signal that got sent to Jupiter. Oh. Interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm starting to think that I wonder if the reason why it emitted that at that time when you have that crew there was because maybe identified that these people may have been capable of discovering the message that it was trying to tell them. And so it's pointing them where to go. It's like, all right, now that you got here, your next checkpoint is over there in Jupiter. Mm. Right. No, that, that sounds to me exactly like what you're saying now. Yeah. Sending a message to them, that seems the most likely thing and that we would pick that up. It's given us a, a paper trail, right? Or like mm-hmm. a, a breadcrumb uh-huh. to follow. Yeah, sure enough. That's what it was. It was pointing to Jupiter for some reason, and they don't quite know what it is yet because the video was supposed, that video package was supposed to play once they got there, but you know, they ran into some snags like Hal trying to kill them. Yeah. So <laughs> trying and successfully killing them. Yeah. Minor snag. So Dave is, I think that was kind of top priority for him. You know, it wasn't necessarily like what's at Jupiter. I think it was more like, how the fuck can I get back in the ship and stop this son of a bitch? Right. Finally arriving at Jupiter, Dave finds a third larger monolith floating in space. He hops into uh, another Eva pod, flies out to it to examine the monolith, but then is pulled into some sort of vortex full of color. So what do you think of this part of the movie? This is the climax right here. Yeah, that was insane. Uh, I, I don't remember the film technique he used, but um, it wasn't even a film technique, I think. Uh, and he just wanted to film it. I think he, he found, he saw something and he wanted to film that. So that whole sequence of colors and everything. Were you expecting that? No. No. At this point where you're like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm like, what am I really watching? It was beautiful and scary music and yeah, all of it. It was, it was uh, unexpected. Where's he going? You know, what was that? Was that some sort of just wormhole that he didn't see? Right, right. Like that, like the monolith itself was um, like the monolith itself had somehow like opened, uh, opened that up for him he was going through some sort of stargate or something right like he's getting transported to a different part of the universe yeah stargate wow yeah 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 where does it where did it put him in some ways this part of the movie kind of and this is what i was alluding to when we were recording interstellar but i didn't want to spoil anything so when Uh. we were talking about interstellar i said the last quarter of the movie reminded me of 2001 a space odyssey and now you see what i'm talking about right? yeah a whole uh, absolutely direct correlation around the same time of the movie too like the last quarter of this movie is around the same time that happens in interstellar as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh well paced as he was traveling through this thing 
whatever this thing is and wherever he's going, did you expect that destination <laughs> at the very end of it? Like at the end of this rainbow is this fucking weird ass Victorian looking. I thought of it as like a cell because there's no doors. There's no windows. There's no way out. It's this kind of futuristic, but yet old styled bedroom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he's just stuck there. He got transported here. You got this brightly lit room. The floors are the floors are the lights. Basically, the light is coming from the floors and there's nothing else other than this bedroom and a bathroom. And what this leads me to believe is that whoever gets transported here is provided the bare essentials. That's it. These humans need to eat. So we'll give them some food at this little dining table. They need to shit. So we'll give them a little bathroom and then they sleep. So we give them a bed and that's it. Those are the basic essentials that a human needs. And whoever built it, whoever brought them here and whoever placed those monoliths there, they obviously knew how humans functioned. And this almost kind of seemed like a place for humans to be transported. So that way they could be studied by whoever built this place. Right, right. Because we can't go anywhere. Once we're here, we can't go anywhere. We're stuck mm -hmm. in this cage. And we're yeah. under the microscope. Yeah. And the years go by. Very odd. It gets even weirder after that. Eventually, <laughs> Dave finds older versions of himself and then becomes those older versions of himself. So as soon as he spots another version, boom, he's like instantly transported into them. And then now he's aged significantly, right? So this rapid aging that's happening to Dave, what, what I'm kind of wondering is, is he really in this place for that long of a time that he's getting to this point? Oh, right, right. Or is, is, is time perceived differently in this place? So like maybe time, since time is perceived differently, it feels instantaneous instead of like taking years and years for him to get to this point. Yeah. And that's, and, and him seeing himself as some sort of just, it shows you how quick it can be. Some moments can take a little bit longer. Others, you can suddenly just jump gaps and have no control. Yeah. Pretty odd and, and kind of confusing. If I'm being mm -hmm. honest, mm -hmm. oh yeah, I didn't fully understand. Even after watching this movie a couple times, I still don't quite understand this part of the movie. Damn, yeah, it was puzzle. It was puzzling for me too. As we approach the very end of the movie, we now see a, an elderly Dave resting in his bed, and uh, the final monolith finally reveals itself in the middle of the room. You know, at the foot of the bed. Strangely, Dave reaches out for it like i wonder if he's trying to say something to it or if he maybe he's like in a senile state that he just kind of like recognizes it and so he's just like oh what is that you know he's kind of mesmerized by it what'd you think of like him like reaching out towards the monolith hmm you know i don't know it could also be that we we create we fear what we don't understand and we crave it at the same time we, we crave that. So it's like, he's still like, it brought him to that point and it's powerful enough to, I mean, maybe it could undo it. Maybe he's thinking it could, it could undo something. Maybe, maybe he's hoping, maybe he's hoping it would have, it would transport him someplace else. I don't know. Reaching out to it. How do you think he felt being in that place? Do you think he was 
he was still trying to understand it because it seemed like it was all happening relatively quickly. It did. At least for him, you know, like from his perspective. Yeah. So I don't think he he quite was there long enough to think like, oh, my God, I'm going crazy. I'm never going to get out of here. I'm trapped here. I think he was still trying to understand everything. And mm-hmm. so I wonder if everything was still pretty fresh in his mind. Like to him, he had still just arrived there, but now he's in, in bed and he's like fucking 80, 90 years old. Hmm. But, you know, as he reaches out for it, Dave is then transformed into what looks like a fetus enclosed in a transparent orb floating in space above Earth. And that is the end of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Very perplexing, to say the least. Yeah. (laughs) But thought provoking as well. Yeah. And, you know, like keeping in the theme of the monoliths being there at critical moments in our existence and, and almost helping us advance and evolve as a species. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's essentially what this was. So the monolith again shows up and maybe the critical time is that you can only ascend once you've reached the end of your body's lifespan. And so maybe that's why he was kind of being fast forwarded to the end. And then once his body reach that end of life, then he was finally able to evolve past it and transcend into this like space baby. Ah, you know, maybe yeah. this is like a whole, like a different plane of existence. And he start he's like brand new to that. You know, he's starting out fresh. Wow. No, that's brilliant. Yeah. Space baby. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of look like that little dancing baby from like decades ago. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? The like yeah, CGI exactly, baby. exactly. Yeah, silly like Ally McBeal baby. <laughs> um, but it was still him in a way because it still had like his eyes though, right? Mm-hmm. It was like he was yeah. just being born Distinctive. again mm-hmm. through the monolith. It's like he somehow knew. Maybe, maybe uh, while he was also. It was while he was also being studied, he was also studying it like by the experience of being in its world. And maybe that's what he knew as well. Lying in there. Pretty wild to think about. Yeah. I feel like once he started getting transported to this other realm, all bets are off. Like, I have no idea where this is yeah. going. <laughs> no, that's how I, I, have, I had no idea. And then it's over and I was like, wow, what the hell? <laughs> basically what the, <laughs> what the hell what the hell that is a wrap on 2001 a space odyssey if you made it to the end of our podcast then you've just transcended into a space baby yourself the thought just like it is like this uh space baby yourself like there it is and then all of a sudden you're just like Boop. you're like oh shit i'm i'm just a helmet now floating in space yeah and just, just in a fetus, a fetus. <laughs> son of a bitch he's right <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh shit here i am <laughs> driving in their car all of a sudden just as they're listening to the podcast all of a sudden huh what the hell <laughs> son of a bitch he's right you've just been transported into a space baby any final thoughts or closing comments? How did it leave you feeling? Um, grateful, uh, puzzled, happy. Yeah, the, it, it, I had a mix of emotions. 
um, not sadness, kind of, I was puzzled, but I kept thinking there were connections to things that I'd seen before. For instance, there's a TV, sh there's, a, there's one, not a TV show, a movie on Netflix called uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Oh, yeah, yeah. I highly recommend it. Yeah, what's her name's in it from um, from uh, Hereditary. Why can't I think of her name? Tony Colette. Colette. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she plays the mom in it, and she does a fantastic job. Fantastic job. Um, but there's some elements of of the uh, of 2001 that you'll see if you if you check it out. You'll you'll appreciate. Now you're starting to see the the various impact yeah. impact and influence uh -huh. that it's had on things since this movie came out. Oh, dude, I am so impressed. I just so much so much respect for and appreciation <laughs> of Stan Stanley Kubrick. Now, in terms of the Kubrick films you've seen, where does this one rank? I would say like three, maybe two or three. I don't know. The Shining. Hmm. It's it's between The Shining and Paths of Glory, and The Shining are up there. Not bad. So pretty high up then. That's cool. I, I have yeah. a feeling that this is. I, I think most people think of two thousand one as their favorite Kubrick film. It seems to be the most popular and the one that I kind of hear referenced over and over again. That could also be because I just watch a lot of sci fi movies, but <laughs> I really did enjoy this movie. I thought it was fucking fantastic, even with the weird ass ending. Um, I actually feel like talking through this, the events happening with you kind of helps me better understand it myself. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I I, I can relate. <laughs> yeah, you just uh, hearing you explain that and then sometimes getting your insight, then it helps me to appreciate what I where I was coming from my perspective as well. I don't know. It definitely does add uh a whole a lot more to it and man th that explanation that you had of the uh of the baby and and of what the monolith is and how it's like kind of this um agent of of change in some sense and yeah. of of uh, adaptation or of ascendance in some way because you don't really know if it's transcendence directly kind of uh causing it to happen or if it's just it's always in the right place at the right time you know Right. The, the thing that we just we can't deny is the fact that every time it shows up or it's every time it's discovered, something significant happens. Right. Dang. But I do like the fact that he doesn't over explain what it is that those things are. We won't even know if those are the aliens themselves or if those are just, yeah, you know, tools for communicating with us or interacting with us in some way. Right more questions than answers in most cases i kind of prefer it that way me too I, I don't like the over explaining and trying to make sense of every single element of a movie sometimes mm -hmm. I, I like the the obscurity i like the uh uncertainness you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. same it's a lot of fun i like those better too make you think interstellar memento yeah, those Christopher Nolan films. Yeah, I, I hope that uh, not a ton of this movie was spoiled for you before you actually saw it. Just the whole not, how. Not a ton. Yeah, just how. Okay. Yeah, going wrong. But other than that, wow, that's only a small portion. The whole movie surpassed what I what I thought. I mean, honestly, it's 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 beautiful. And you were saying that you were excited to see some of the 
film techniques, right? Like in the the space station and the the spaceship. Was it cool seeing more of that? Like how specifically there was a part where you said someone was like walking along a hallway or something and they start going upside down. Right, right, right. It was when he was like, um, it was either when he was he reading or was it was it when he was jogging. Might have been oh, and he was doing that, that awkward boxing. Yeah, awkward boxing. Exactly. Yeah, shadow boxing. <laughs> is a, um, that was cool. Yeah. No, that was such a it was it was interesting. Did you notice those sets were curved too? So like the desks were curved and the ends of it would kind of like bow upward. Because the whole thing is like a circular room, right? So I right. think they would they would mount the camera in one spot. I think it would rotate. The whole thing would rotate. So mm. as he was jogging, he was always at the base of this ring. Mm -hmm. But from the perspective of the camera, it's sideways. And so it looks like he's running horizontally around this right. room. Right, right, right. Exactly. It was really cool. Yeah. I think the part that blew a lot of people away it might have been at the very beginning that stewardess she's gathering the food or whatever. And then she walks to the hallway and there's this door in the floor, but she starts like walking along this wall. And then eventually that the end of the room, oh, is right. The floor is like perfectly lined up with her. And then she just walks through that door. I loved that. I loved that scene. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that when she takes food to the cockpit? Yeah, I think so. Brilliant. It was beautiful. The music was amazing. Oh, dude, that was a stunning, stunning shot. Yeah. The cinematography in this movie, I was digging. I love the way that they portrayed how Tal doesn't even have to move or go anywhere. It's just this eye. But yeah. yet he was so powerful and menacing at the same time. Yeah, exactly. This inanimate object. Powerful. It kind of shows you that, you know, we may have been advancing beyond our reach. We're biting off a little bit more than we can chew. Exactly. And in some ways, it kind of applies to now since AI is so prominent now and there's so much hype and focus around it. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's that whole paperclip theory thing. Um, I don't remember all the details, but essentially this is a it's sort of this thought that if um, if you were supposed to if you were to do something with AI, something if you were to assign AI some sort of benign task, like, say, making paperclips. Hmm. Um, it would make paper clips to the point where it would use all of our natural resources and would destroy us because its sole purpose is to make paper clips. So something so seemingly benign can also be completely damaging unless, and this is the, this is the point was unless you are able to program empathy into this thing so that it knows not to hurt us or the rest of nature for that matter. Mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah, that it would it would do a task it was assigned to do. Now I don't know if I would say that that was Hal's problem, that he was I'm doing a task that I was supposed to do. So much as Hal was was breaking through to sentience to where he could make a mistake like a human. He was becoming mm -hmm. more human, more human than human. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great song, yeah. and I just realized that's not on my Spotify. And why the fuck is that not on my Spotify? White Holy zombie. Shit forgot about that song hell yeah <laughs> that's such a that dude my pops bought that cd i was like hell yeah he bumped that in the car oh yeah i was like, I was like dad you're he's wild. a white zombie <laughs> or rob zombie fan <laughs> oh he just loved that song and he bought this back in the day you know he couldn't just buy songs mm. individually so he's like ah, i'll buy the whole damn thing nice oh well i'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed the movie and I, I hope it didn't disappoint 
I didn't want to overhype least. it for you. You know, I wanted you to have your own opinion about the movie. I got to probably see it like two, three more times, but for sure it was amazing and visually stunning. I was like, I cried at one point because I was just like, dang, man, like the music was so beautiful. And it was when like the spaceship was spinning and it was like docking, but it was like the prolonged, the slowness of it was just so elegant. I was like, thank you. I'm savoring this. This is like honey dripping from, you know. And there's so many scenes in the movie similar to that you know it's just he just draws it out even mm -hmm. like the jogging in the the spaceship it shows him jogging from like a an outside perspective and then it shows like up close and he's like running towards the camera and then it shows like a camera shot right behind him and he's still doing his little shadow boxing mm -hmm. all these extended scenes you know and i i loved it yeah I had a blast because it gave me more time to be able to examine the setting and take it all in yeah breathe it taste it re revel in it yeah, I appreciated that too. It was beautiful. So much thought put into it. Yeah. Oh. Are you watching anything lately? Film or TV? Yeah, actually, um, finished that the show, the rehearsal. I don't know if you're familiar. It's on Max. Hmm. It's it's by this guy named Nathan Fielder. He's kind of remarkable. I I, I don't know if I mentioned some of the stuff that I was watching with with him about him to you but yeah he did some he did this crazy thing so he had a show before the rehearsal called nathan for you and in nathan for you his whole thing was um uh, he's it's like he's a comedian you know he's like this comedian he's got dry just dry wit and you can't tell sometimes if he's joking or not but like he has these crazy business ideas like his first business the first episode is um one of the stories is He's helping out this like yo this like froyo place, and his suggestion mm -hmm. is that they offer a poo flavored yogurt. What? Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? He, yeah, he he in in the guy's like okay, so he gives him the green light. So he on with HBO's budget, he hires like chemists to make exactly what a poo flavored yogurt would taste like. Is it a reality TV show or? Oh, it's reality. Is it all scripted? Yeah. Okay. No, no, it's not scripted. It's it's. I, mean, I don't know how much is scripted, but but yeah, it's, it's okay. a reality TV show. So he helps out that business, um, and the, the, the there was a huge line. Like there was a lot more business they got that day. Um, then he, yeah, I won't go on. I won't tell too much about that. But that's one example. The rehearsal is. I would recommend watching a few episodes of Nathan for You, maybe a couple of the early ones, and like a couple of the later ones. And you'll see what the rehearsal really was, what, what Nathan for you was actually leading toward. But yeah, check it out. I really recommend it, dude. It's a good show. Gotcha. All mm -hmm. right. All right. What about you? Um, I haven't watched a whole lot. You know, I was telling you at work, uh, saw the Beckham documentary. I thought it was pretty That's interesting. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I went in not knowing. Well, I, I don't really watch soccer myself, and I didn't know much about David Beckham other than he was married to Victoria, who was a Spice mm -hmm. Girl. So I knew more about her <laughs> than I did David Beckham. Man, he had a pretty interesting career. If you, if you like soccer or football uh, in Europe and um, mm -hmm. you're specifically a fan of Manchester United or anything like that, uh, any of the teams that he's played for, then I think it's worth watching. Like I thought it was, it was definitely enjoyable and informative and entertaining, honestly. It's cool seeing how he is now. He's a very humble guy. 
he didn't come from much of anything and he did have a, a point in his career when he started getting big he was kind of like a playboy for a little bit mm -hmm. you know he was mm -hmm. like throwing money around and he was a sex symbol if you will mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. but um he runs a uh, a American soccer league. I think it's Miami. I forgot what the mm -hmm. team is called, but Messi plays for it. Yeah, Inter Miami. So, yeah, yeah. Beckham was able to sign the great Lionel Messi. That's crazy. Wild, huh? Yeah, and ever in my dreams would I think Messi would be playing here, especially because a lot of people are giving Beckham shit for leaving the European leagues to come to LA Galaxy. They thought he was right. selling out like crazy. Right, right. And I mean, now you have another legend, arguably even more of a legend than Beckham. And before him, Pele. So you've had Pele at the top, at the height of his career, or at the height after the Olympics, or I'm sorry, World Cup. And then, and then Beckham, and of course, Messi. Yep. Afflictionados is available wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop on the first Saturday of each month, 5 a.m. Pacific. If you enjoy our content, give us a like, a thumbs up, and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you for the listeners out there for joining Michael, Hal, and I. This has been Afflictionados <laughs> Podcast, episode 33, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And we'll see you all next time. Hmm. Ciao.